welcome to this latest episode of Inside Tech. Today we're talking about crypto assets, smart contracts, the UKJT legal statement, and a recently released High Court judgment adopting some of the conclusions of that legal statement. I'm joined by um, Dorothy Livingston and Andrew Moore uh, from Herbert Smith Freehills. I will let you both introduce yourself briefly. I'm Dorothy Livingston. I'm uh... Uh, consultant in our competition regulation and trade department and also have a background in banking law. I'm the chairman of the City of London Law Society Financial Law Committee, which has made an input to the JS work. And um, I personally was an expert consultant in the latter stages of production of that statement. Hello, I'm Andrew Moy. I'm a partner in the um, Intellectual Property team at HSF um, in London, and I also head up um, the firm's global cyber and data security practice as well. Andrew is the um, the original legal engineer before the uh, the term was coined, and brings a unique blend of deep legal and, and technical IT expertise to the advice he gives the clients. And Dorothy, uh, no, no introduction is needed. Has had an illustrious career joining us. Uh, I think first in, in, in 1970. Um, gone through many, many things since then. I am Charlie Morgan. I'm a dispute resolution lawyer specialising in arbitration in the energy and technology sectors. I lead the firm's uh, digital law group in the UK, which is a diverse team of creative lawyers uh, bringing together legal, strategic and advice for clients on emerging technology and digital transformation. Um, Andrew, will you kick us off? Uh, talk us a little bit about what a crypto asset is. Sure. So um, there's lots of different types. I mean, the ones that people would be most familiar with and would have heard of is things like sort of Bitcoin and Litecoin and so on. Um, and effectively what they are is, is, a, is a digital token that is intended to, to represent value or, or, or um, a store value in, in the physical world. Um, and they exist on um, what's known as a, a, a DLT, a distributed ledger technology or, or blockchain. So explain a bit um, more about what that actually is in practice. I think it's, it's easiest to compare it to um, you know, real-world currency. So if you've got a real-world currency and I want to know what my um, bank balance is, I ask my bank, they look at their ledger, they're, they're the only people who've got the copy of it, and they tell you um, what that balance is, and you can trust the bank um, to tell you what that is. If you've got a, um, a crypto asset or cryptocurrency, you, you take the bank out of that, um, and what you basically then do is give everybody a copy of that ledger, that's your distributed ledger, um, and then you can ask anybody what your balance is. But then you need a way of, of trusting, how do you know that that person is telling you um, what your bank balance is and, and that they're, they're right? So then you need a concept of distributed trust, and that's where the crypto bit comes in. I won't go into exactly how it's done, but basically you use various cryptographic techniques to enable you to trust that person that you're asking um, what your balance is. And Dorothy, what, what's the appeal of a crypto asset and, and what makes them new? I think the, um, the fact that they're new is that they've only become possible with the, uh, the technology developed um, with the development of the World Wide Web. Um, and as such, that is why there are questions about what their exact legal status is. Um, their importance is that they're increasingly used as a form of, um, I think the closest analogy, and it's one American law has adopted, uh, is, uh, is money. Um, but there are other forms of crypto asset which more resemble various traditional forms of property, such as shares or um, uh, rights to obtain services. And, and so what are the perceived benefits of, for instance, as Andrew said, take, taking out the bank as a middleman or um, having a digital asset that is, that is different from 
money? So I think, I mean, firstly, when we're talking about sort of crypto assets here, so um, it doesn't necessarily need to be a currency. You can you can represent anything on a blockchain, and there's real world examples of people using it, the technology to track diamonds, for example, other things where you need to, to show uh, precisely where something has, has come from. Um, and the attraction is because it's inherently um, open or can be open if you wanted to. It means that lots of different organizations in different sectors can all effectively be using the same system for, for, the, for the same purpose. And um, as Dorothy mentioned, you can sort of take out the middleman as it were. So you can have direct transactions between organizations and otherwise um, would be have, having to work through an intermediary. So there's cost and other savings that come from that as well. And that's why uh, we see financial institutions begin uh, to um, move into using um, this technology um, uh, in a more systematic and formal way, um, although it was originally developed and used largely by um, individuals and probably small businesses. Could you say uh, something about why uh, crypto assets or smart legal contracts are relevant to your areas of practice? Well, in the case of contract formation, particularly in the finance field, as I've mentioned, banks are beginning to move into using blockchain systems uh, much more in their day-to-day activities. And also in their dealings with customers, they've already adopted quite a wide range of electronic contracts. And some of these increasingly will have features which would be recognised as smart contract features. The automatic execution in effect. So in terms of, of where I'm seeing some crypto assets and, and smart legal contracts um, coming through, and I think that the, the main area is that um, a lot of our clients, particularly in the financial services sector, are looking for ways to, to streamline their business, to reduce costs. And, and when you've got a sort of retail bank that's got you know, hundreds of thousands of customers, if, if they can make their processes of, of, uh, more efficient, um, you know, applying for, for um, mortgages or applying for whatever it might be, um, then, of course, that, that's something that, that results in a lot lower cost for them and, 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 and greater profit. So what we're tending to see is banks um, looking at a blockchain technology or smart legal contracts as a way of streamlining those processes. Um, and often that is combined with other technologies such as um, electronic signatures and so on um, in order to completely automate end-to-end um, solutions for these, for these types of business processes. Um, the other main area where I see um, crypto assets coming through is in relation to cybersecurity. And unfortunately, Bitcoin is, it has got a bit of a reputation for being the currency of choice if, if you're um, from writing ransomware, for example. So you see it a lot in that context as, as well. So let's move on to the, the legal statement that was uh, released back in November. Dorothy, one of the key questions in there is whether or not um, crypto assets can have the legal status of, of property under English law. Uh, why is it important whether or not they can have that status? Uh, I think it's important uh, because uh, the English legal law order, to a large extent, uh, depends upon recognising categories of property. Um, many important functions uh, for society, for example, um, inheritance, the recognisation of corporate wealth in its balance sheet, of a company, the law on trusts, the law on giving security and insolvency law all depend on identifying and valuing the property of a person or a company. Um, so if an asset is in legal terms pro- not property, it would be excluded from the application of these laws and more importantly 
from the associated legal remedies. So this might leave the owner of an excluded asset, uh, although he thought he owned an asset, without any redress, for example, in the case of fraud or breach of trust. So it's very important that crypto assets are recognised in law as a form of property so that the law stays in line with technological developments and also recognises how crypto assets are used in the real world. And Andrew, what did the legal study conclude on that point? So there's quite a bit of uh, debate, as, as you'd expect, in, in the statement. And effectively, what they were trying to get to grips with was, was whether or not um, crypto assets could constitute a um, you know, thing in possession or a thing in action um, uh, or, or something else. And that was relevant because if you go all the way back to the 19th century case law on it, that was what the law was saying at that point was the only two forms of property that you could have. Um, and whilst it might sort of sound like a, um, it's a fairly esoteric legal question, it's important for the, the, the reasons Dorothy said to establish whether or not prejudices can constitute property. So the bottom line that, that comes out of the statement is that it's neither of those two things, um, that we need to kind of move on from the 19th century case law, given that we're you know, two centuries down the line now, um, recognise that, that crypto assets um, is not, was not really, could not have been in the contemplation of, of the, uh, the, the judges back in the 19th century, and say so that we really need to move on and, and recognise crypto assets as a, as a new form of intangible property. So the legal statement in itself isn't binding on the courts of England and Wales, but it was intended to give greater market confidence uh, for those investing or using crypto assets. But we've had a recent decision in the English courts that, that commented on the legal statement and on the question of the status of crypto assets as property. Can you um, talk us a little bit about that case, Andrew, as well? So this is the um, AA and Persons Unknown case, um, which was the result of a ransomware attack where a, um, a company's insurer had, had paid a ransom on, on behalf of that um, company. They were covered by uh, cyber insurance. And um, what effectively happened then was that because the insurer had subrogated rights, they were trying to trace the, the Bitcoin payment that had been made. And because, um, the, as I mentioned, the, the ledger is completely open, there is absolutely no reason why you can't trace money that had been paid in, in such circumstances as that. So the insurance company wanted their money back. They had traced the money to a particular currency, a Bitcoin crypto exchange, um, and wanted that exchange to tell them information about who it was that was holding it, um, and also hopefully then take um, possession of that and put a constructive trust around it. So that, what, that was what basically happened. But... All of those rights depended upon whether or not the cryptocurrency itself could be recognised as a form of property, because that then gives you the right to those those injunctions. And effectively, the court in that case, um, referring to the um, UKJT legal statement, you know, for the reasons that were set out in that statement, concluded that it was property, that you could get an injunction in it, and then um, granted um, the first stage of the relief that, that uh, the insurance company was seeking. And so a question to both of you, do you think that's the final um, word on the question or is there uh, still debate about whether the status of crypto assets uh, does qualify as property under English law? It's probably not the final word because it's a first instance judgment and it is, one view would be that there was a binding Supreme Court judgment to the opposite effect, although I don't think that's a correct view. It's possible, therefore, that at some point, a case will reach the Supreme Court and they will, I would uh, hope, follow the legal statement and um, confirm 
the existence of a property right. Uh, alternatively, it might be overtaken by legislative uh, measures, uh, possibly linked to measures intended to limit the extent of, of fraud or money laundering through crypto asset techniques. I think from my perspective, I mean, if, if you sort of take a step back and, and, and zoom out, as it were, I mean, in, the, in, in that case I've just mentioned, um, it was 1.2 million US dollars worth of Bitcoin. And just from first principles, it would seem rather perverse if, if a court turned around and said, well, that couldn't represent property. So I think in terms of that, I, I would expect um, you know, there's a principle for it to be confirmed in, in, in later judgments. I think the challenge is um, where you take the consequences of it being property in, in different situations and work out how it actually applies. If you look at things like, you know, can you take if it's property, can you take a mortgage over it? And then you look at that kind of thing and superimpose the technical reality of how in practice you manipulate Bitcoin and other things like that. How would that work? I think there'll be a lot more jurisprudence on that over the years as people get to grips with it. I think that's right. Though, of course, something like a mortgage or charge would probably be a traditional paper contract with a choice of law. But relating to an asset, there's some interesting questions of, as to where the asset is situated, which the present state of English property law unfortunately makes quite important uh, to issues of potentially what the governing law is, what the formalities would be to create a valid uh, charge or a valid trust. And they can be quite complicated. So let's also talk a little bit about smart contracts and smart legal contracts. Uh, let me set the scene and remind everyone what a smart contract is. Uh, effectively, it is nothing more than computer code that can automatically monitor and execute digital events. A smart contract is performed, at least in part, without the need for direct human intervention. And that's where uh, people are getting excited about the prospects of smart contracts because it leads down the path of actually being able to automate and self-execute certain contractual events. But it's important to remember that a smart contract is just code um, and that the automaticity doesn't necessarily uh, comply with all of the legal requirements for a valid and effective legal contract. So here at HSF we, we talk a little bit about smart legal contracts as well, which are traditional natural language contracts which embed code but which comply with all of those uh, mandatory requirements for the legal and effective uh, contract to take effect. Can smart contracts be binding, Dorothy? I think that was one of the questions that was asked in, in the paper. Yeah, and answered resoundingly yes, and I think that's correct. They're just like any other contract, uh, provided that they have the characteristics of a contract um, and meet the formalities required for any particular type of contract, then they are a legally binding contract like any other. So, for example, all contracts would require, under English law, uh, some form of consideration if they're to be considered as an English law contract. But certain types of contract may have additional requirements of a formal nature, such as they need to be signed, uh, including signed electronically, or they need to be in writing. Now, where a contract, a smart contract, has a, a text, a portion, it's a portion that can be printed out as te text in English or any other language, um, then, of course, it's not likely to be difficult to, to meet those requirements. Where it is pure code with no element that can be produced as a language text, then showing compliance with such formalities uh, would be more difficult, as would meeting any registration requirements, e.g. for security over assets of UK companies 
as regards registered assets such as land, ships and aircraft. However, I would say that those registers are nowhere near a state where they would be contemplating accepting registrations of a smart contract. Uh, and therefore, for practical terms, that's a future problem. Of course, using smart contracts will carry some advantages. It may remove some areas of, tech, of dispute, but it certainly won't remove all disputes. And there may be some new ones, for example, in areas such as where the code doesn't work properly for some reason or other, and therefore doesn't do what the parties expected it to do. Absolutely. And, and, and Andrew, um, will smart contracts be subject to the usual rules of contract law? Yes, I think so. I mean, if you look at the um, the legal statement, I mean, it, it broadly concludes that existing contract law is 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 fit for purpose and is capable of being applied um, in the new smart contracting world. So I think that will be the starting point, and the case law will evolve as there are more decisions that actually seek to do that application. And how do you think a court would go about trying to interpret a smart contract, so a contract that includes uh, or is entirely drafted in, in computer code? So I think um, one of the key points will be to try to construe what the intention of the parties was, just as it is now in relation to a paper contract. And where that gets slightly more difficult with um, smart contracts is you, you end up in a position where you're trying to establish whether the computer code that is actually implementing this contract is supposed to be a reflection of the party's intent that is somehow manifested elsewhere, either you know, in, in, a, in a written contract or something, or whether or not the actual computer code is the only statement that exists that, of, of what the party's intent was. And that, that is where you get into difficulties because although um, but obviously computers are completely deterministic at the moment, they just do as they're told, they follow the code precisely as it's written, the code will have a, a specific effect. Um, the difficulty will be where that effect is not what actually what the party's in, intended. Um, and it's not just a matter of construing what the, what the source code says. Um, there's an added complication, which is what, what the code does is also independent um, on external inputs. So it may be that the code of itself is doing what it should, but someone has not anticipated that a particular input into it, a particular event or something that was supposed to happen, um, the data that's being fed is not what was expected. So I'm envisaging um, a lot of disputes around this where there's smart contracts take off um, and where things happen that parties were not anticipating and then disputes around trying to work out what to do about that. What do you both think this means, possibly just to wrap up, for the skill sets of a lawyer going forward? I suspect a better technological understanding of how these contracts work will be necessary. I think what will happen is there will be an ever-increasing intersection between the law and the technology. And I think where we're going and, and, and what we're sort of looking to do at the moment is look for lawyers that have got that technical background and that coding experience. Because at some point, maybe not in the next few years, but certainly some longer term after that, there's going to be a situation where lawyers are going to either have to draft code to implement smart contracts or the bailies be able to read and understand what it was that was supposed to be happening because at the end of the day if, if the court is trying to construe what the intention of the parties is and what they've got in front of them is, is a bit of computer code um, then all the submissions all of the legal arguments around that are going to be based on what that code does or should have done um, and having that blend of the legal and the technology in there um, I think is going to be important to do that. Great. Well, thank you both very, very much for your time. 
Um, the takeaways, I think, from me for that were the UKJT legal statement gives greater certainty um, about the status of crypto assets as um, property under English law. That is bolstered by um, some recent case law, but it's a watch this space for the court's final word uh, in the coming months and possibly years. Smart contracts, exciting new opportunities for, for lawyers and businesses to automate some of the steps within their contracts, but comes with practical and legal hurdles and potentially a need for lawyers to upskill in order to both draft and resolve disputes arising under those uh, smart legal contracts. Thanks again for your time. Please do join us on the next episode of our uh, Inside Tech series.